You're very welcome to the SPS Global Insights podcast. My name is Laura Woods and today it's our pleasure to have Fraser Thompson with us. With an illustrious career spanning over 29 years in security and risk management, Fraser personifies adaptive leadership and strategic vision in complex international arenas. His career has been highlighted by pivotal roles, such as establishing the premier global security operations center at International Paper Company and leading diverse teams at the FBI to fortify the U.S.'s defenses. Fraser's approach goes beyond traditional methods. He is an innovator who has persistently developed strategies to enhance collaborative efforts and uplift risk management processes across corporations. His academic and professional training covering business administration to strategic leadership forms the foundation of his outstanding professional narrative. Fraser, you're very welcome. How are you today? I am well, Laura. Thank you very much for that warm introduction. And wow, um, I'm going to have to get you to write my bio and maybe my tombstone. <laughs> I wouldn't have enough room. <laughs> <laughs> Fraser, your career has been Utterly fascinating to research uh, in the lead up to today's chat. We're going to go back to the beginning now because I think our listeners would really like to go on this journey with us as we talk through your professional life. You began your career as a combat medic back in 1985. Was this something you had always, an area you'd been interested in since you were a child or did it happen by chance? That's a that's a really good question, Laura. And and before I answer that, you know, you mentioned that I've had a stellar career. Yes, I've been blessed to uh, have many opportunities. But I want to I want to start off by saying that I recognize that I have stepped on, stood on many shoulders to get and to have that career of those that came before me, and a lot of mentors, uh, good and bad, uh, that I learned from uh, to get to where I am today. So thank you for that. And yes, you know, I, I think about this often, you know, what started me down the path of, of my path in reflecting on that, I, I realized from a very early young age, I wanted to serve others. And I think that's what led me to the medical profession for the Army. I've always wanted to serve in the U.S. military, and I had a desire to help others. So that's what led me to the combat medic role. Was it a role that you enjoyed? Yes, it was. I mean, obviously it was challenging um, and the training was challenging, but I I took to it and really enjoyed it. Now, I want to be clear that time as a combat medic was limited, but that's that's where I did initially enlist in uh, my role uh, in the Army National Guard at the time. So how did you jump from being a combat medic into the FBI? Also at a very young age, and I don't necessarily recall this, but my mother reminds me often that at the tender age of 16, I used to say that I always wanted to be an FBI agent. Really? Yes. And, you know, I I made it through high school and went off to college. And at that time when I enrolled in university, I can't recall ever having that goal in mind. Uh, but I'm reminded by my mother all the time, hey, you wanted to do this since you were 16. And I think just in the back of my mind, that's what led me to my accounting degree, uh, because at the time, the FBI was really focused on accountants and lawyers. That's back from the Hoover days, that if you were a lawyer or an accountant, that's the only way you could get into the FBI at the time. And so I think that's what kind of led me down that path. And it didn't hurt that my father was an accountant as well. So I kind of uh, steer towards some of that. And 
you know, from the combat medic as an enlisted person, while I was going through college, I went through officer candidate school. So I became a commissioned officer and always had this desire to hone my leadership skills. And I think that's what led me to become a commissioned officer in the, in the military. And just coupled with those experiences, with my accounting background and my work history is kind of what ultimately led me to, to join the federal law enforcement. When I first applied, the FBI actually had a hiring freeze. So I went and worked with another federal agency first uh, before the FBI and then ultimately transferred over to the FBI. I'm keen to explore as many areas as possible that you worked in during your time at the Bureau. Were you just assigned to one particular area or were you able to move around during those 21 years of service? I think that's the beauty of the FBI and what makes it uh, such a great organization to be a part of is you have that flexibility, especially as a, as a special agent, uh, a line agent working cases. You could stay working the same uh, type of cases your whole career. It's, it's rare, but in these days, it's also possible to stay in the same office your whole career. I've seen it happen. But once you get into management, which is what I did after about six years in the FBI, then, then you tend to move around uh, quite a bit. Uh, and that's what, that's what happened to me. Prior to 9-11, I was working uh, criminal cases, bank fraud and counter-narcotic cases, organized crime cases. Uh, and then 9-11 happened and everybody became a, a counterterrorism expert overnight. Because they had to. Because you had to. We were forced into it. And, and majority of folks, uh, you know, back in the in those days, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces were a thing, but not every office had one. And if they did have one, it was typically only one. Uh, but after 9-11, every office had a Joint Terrorism Task Force and some of multiple squads working those matters uh, split up into different focus areas of parts of the world. Anyone watching those heartbreaking images on the morning of 9-11 would have been moved to tears. It was absolutely traumatic to witness. I remember so well uh, my heartbreaking for those people. How were you able to park those emotions and put your work as an FBI agent first? You know, that's that's a tough question to answer because uh, it's it's challenging. Whether, whether it's a military professional, a first responder, you know, dealing with a um, horrific traffic accident, right? And you coming up on the scene. How do you compartmentalize that? It takes a it takes a rare breed, I think, to be able to do that and to remain functioning. And I think that's what makes the profession of law enforcement of military so uh, so unique and profound. Look, you train, so you just got to focus on your training. And what you know is right to do and uh, take it minute by minute and do what you think is right at the right time. You mentioned there, Fraser, that you all had to become counterterrorism experts overnight. You played a major role in the investigation of Flight 93 uh, as part of the wider 9-11 team. Could you give us a little bit of insight from your perspective as to how that investigation unfolded? Yeah, I was actually assigned to the Newark, New Jersey office of the FBI at the time. And uh, Flight 93 actually departed from Newark International Airport uh, that fateful morning. So at the time, yeah, I remember it um, like it was yesterday, just like you mentioned. And, you know, as that investigation unfolded, I would describe it as organized chaos. 
everybody was running around frantic. And, and I say everybody, I mean, citizens, uh, non-law enforcement as well, because just it was nobody knew exactly what was going on, exactly who all was involved uh, and whether or not there was going to be other attacks associated with it. So it was organized chaos. Uh, but I got to tell you, the response from all law enforcement agencies uh, around the world pulling together and making sense of things very quickly, uh, I might add, uh, it was just extraordinary. Uh, and again, you just had to take it minute by minute, look at all the facts that were being collected and thousands, millions of leads coming in from phone calls, private citizens, other law enforcement agencies around the world, some valid, some unbelievable, right? But you had to, you had to uncover each and every one of those rocks, turn it over, see what was under it, uh, and make a decision on whether or not you, it was valuable information to, to follow up on or not. And I was blessed as a very young agent uh, at that time, uh, very early in my career, uh, to be assigned as the Flight 93 case agent uh, for Newark, New Jersey. And so I was basically leading the effort for the investigation of that case. Now, I didn't do it by myself, obviously. I had a huge team supporting me, uh, many agents much more tenured than I was, that I relied heavily on their expertise. But uh, that's what kind of led me into, and that was my first exposure to international terrorism. Can you take us back to the morning of 9-11 when you first got the phone call? That that must have been quite surreal in that moment, the fight or flight response uh, for you and colleagues. A lot to take in. Yeah, it was. And at the time, remember, I was not working terrorism. I was working criminal matters. And I remember distinctly that we were actually at an in-service training, a large group of us, that uh, participating in that training were Agents work in criminal cases, counterintelligence cases, and terrorism cases. And remember, I remember we were starting off that day uh, with the, the uh, in-service training about preparing to get started, and it was running late, and uh, we couldn't really figure out why. And uh, a couple of the terrorism agents, at the time we had pagers, if you remember what those are, uh, pagers started going off, right? And they got up, left, made some phone calls. And then we got an announcement and they rolled out the, the, the TV to show the news that a plane had collided into one of the towers. And if you remember at first, even the news reporting, oh, it must have been a little small plane accident, pilot error. Right. That's what everybody believed. That's what we all believed. But did you or was there a niggly feeling? Well, you know, I think that by the time I knew I think the, the second plane had already hit. And once that second plane, it was obvious. This was not a mistake. Uh, this was an intentional act. And I still think, at least from my perspective as a criminal agent, not being in that world at the moment, how could this happen? Is Who would have the wherewithal to pull such, a, such an event off? Could this be terrorism? Obviously it was. But at the time, I just I couldn't fathom it, right? Uh, it was unbelievable to me as a criminal agent. You mentioned that your colleagues scrambled um, and with the help of global entities and leaders were able to function harmoniously to create these teams to investigate the Twin Towers and in your case, Flight 93. You must have 
gotten to know the families um, very well of those who lost their lives uh, on that plane on that day? Members of the investigative team did, uh, in particular, my partner, who was actually a New Jersey State Police trooper. Uh, so that's the level of partnership we had, that the partner assigned to the case working with me was actually not an FBI agent. And so we had specific teams assigned to family members, uh, and they would be the main liaison in dealing with that. Obviously, I met some of them. I didn't have the close relationship that some of the some of the team has, but I can tell you, hearing the cockpit voice recorder, knowing the family names and, and their loved ones that were that you can hear on that that recorder during the incident, um, and talking with some of my partners that had that direct relationship, it's tough. Even to this day, talking about it. And thinking about it, I get choked up, and uh, I know that uh, those members of the team, even more so than me. Do you think that event changed you as a person and as an agent? Absolutely. How, how could it not? Uh, and I think it it really refocused uh, not only individuals, individual investigators, but entities and organizations in whole, to include the FBI. And it... To me, it further ingrained the importance of partnerships and sharing of information and working as a team uh, for for mutually beneficial goals. We couldn't compete with each other. We had to be uh, leverage our our unique strengths and expertise in each organization to come together to ensure the the world much much more so the U.S. remains safe. And I suppose the events of 9-11 were the catalyst for a complete overhaul of security in the aviation sector. Now, some would suggest that perhaps it should have been needed 20 years before. But as a traveller in 2024, I'm fully aware of the changes that are in place pre and post 9-11 for me travelling. But from a security perspective, there must have been a massive shift, a seismic shift in how security personnel would operate then and now in the aviation sector. Yeah, I think it actually changed security for all industries, right? Uh, It refocused uh, what it meant to have a safe and secure workplace uh, in whatever industry you were in. Obviously, the threat was specific to the aviation industry that day. And so, yeah, it had drastic impacts, as you know, as a traveler uh, to that. And frankly, travel is not fun (laughs) anymore, right? Back back then, it was very easy and uh, welcoming to do. It can be challenging now, but it's a necessary evil um, and it's important. Fraser, post 9-11 and your investigation with the team there, you then moved into overseeing the high-value detainee interrogation group, HIG, as it's known. It was formed in 2009 by the Obama administration and charged with developing humane interrogation methods based on academic research. And what's really interesting here is that the teams you pulled in were from a wide variety of industries. So not only did you have interagency personnel like the CIA, the DIA and the FBI, but you also included linguists, cultural experts, historians. How did that team work together? I think the bringing together of this these organizations for this specific task, frankly, was challenging uh, because each of the separate agencies had their expertise, right? 
they knew how to interview folks. They knew how to inter- interrogate and investigate. So creating a third entity, making up all these other organizations, uh, was very challenging at the time. Uh, and what a lot of people don't know about the high-value detainee interrogation group, the HIG, was that part of the charter, we, the entity was meant to be the locus, the center of all interrogation interview research for the U.S. government. And so we were highly partnered, not only within those organizations that you mentioned, but also academia. Uh, and, and we had research specialists, um, professors, and scientists and uh, on the team as part of the HIG to conduct that research uh, and partner in, in, um, with academia around the world to develop research and those best practices. It sounds like a very ambitious and well-intentioned project. How long did you work at HIG? I was there for probably, it was later in my career, and there had been several, uh, as you mentioned, the HIG was created in 2009. So it was in the, um, I got to the HIG in 2015. So it had been established for a while and had been working. And I was there for about a year and a half. When your tenure with the HIG finished, you decided to transition from government to the private sector. You're clearly very passionate about the work that you did um, for your government and for your country. Why did you decide to make that change? You know, that's a tough decision, uh, I think, for anybody uh, with a career in the government to leave it, especially with a career like I had. So many are lifers. Were you not tempted to stay there? No, I think I wasn't personally, uh, because there. I think with anything, you you come to a realization that it's time for a change. It's time to move on uh, for whatever reason. For me, it was hey, I had done my time. I was retirement eligible. And for my family and the number of hours that I was putting in and frankly, the pay. Right. I was working for free, uh, basically. And so it was just time. I was. Uh, I needed a change. I needed a new challenge, and I knew uh, with the large family I have, uh, I knew I was going to be working for a long time. So I needed to start that uh, that second career while I was still marketable. But how wonderful is it that your career has allowed you to take a different path um, halfway through your professional life, and as you say, start on this whole new career something that you're very familiar with, an environment you're familiar with, but in the corporate sector. And you can do so much for other communities too, because you also help transition military vets from the military to the corporate sector. And this really intrigued me because I suppose many vets might finish out their time with the, with the army and then feel that they're at a loss of what to do next, whereas actually they're highly skilled individuals. Um, they probably don't realize their worth in the corporate sector. Is that the case? Yeah, I think a lot of people have a hard time to articulate their skill sets that they've learned and honed over a career in the military and law enforcement, government service into private corporation world. And uh, it can be it can be challenging to do that because you learn you learn a language right in the government, and sometimes that language doesn't necessarily translate easily to those that don't have that background uh, that live their life in the private industry corporate world 
they just don't understand that that talk and and uh, the, the language. So you've got to be able to, and it, you can do it. And there's a lot of avenues to help you do that. And, and you mentioned I'm part of American Corporate Partners, which is an organization that partners with vets and private corporations to try to provide mentors and mentorships to these retiring individuals to help with that transition. And it's very rewarding for me. I started it probably a couple of years ago, and you're assigned typically one person uh, for an annual basis, and you help them through the transition. And whether that's getting a, a new job or just finding what they they want to do, uh, what are their desires? And I think my role, I'm a, I was certified by the DIA as an executive coach as well. Uh, so that's really helped me in those conversations and, and to help pull out exactly what that mentee wants to get out of their transition, out of their life uh, going forward in their next chapter. And uh, you got to be able to, to translate your skills, your experience, which is huge, your leadership, your ability to work in crisis, uh, your ability to, to make decisions and to build a team. Those are huge skill sets needed in the corporate world. And you just got to find a way to translate that into the business speak and language. Which you do so well. And I'm not surprised by that extra string to your bow as an executive coach, because you've spent your whole professional life honing your leadership skills, as far as I can see. We mentioned in in your introduction, obviously, that you established the Premier Global Security Operations Centre at the International Paper Company. And I'm just wondering, when you are considering establishing a team in your current work environment, what the thought process is for you and how important a variety of uh, different backgrounds, professionally speaking, is for you to have the perfect team in place? I think building a diverse team is critical, no matter what your goal is. Um, if you build a team around the same thought process, the same background of people, you're going to be have a very myopic view of a, a problem set that you've got a challenger. And so if you can build a team with very diverse backgrounds and experiences, you're going to be much more successful in accomplishing the goals that that team needs to accomplish. Fraser, is this a good time then to ask you about all the wonderful uh, work you do promoting women within the security industry? I know you're a big advocate for um, female representation and equality there. Uh, and on that note, actually, what was the ratio male to female um, in the FBI going back 20 years? And what is it now? Do you know? Has it improved? It's definitely improved. Uh, I mean, obviously, there were females in the FBI when I joined. Uh, but yeah, it was a very low ratio. It's much higher now. I don't know what the percentage is, uh, but I think it is, I'm, I'm told it is much higher uh, and the dynamics have actually changed. And what about the corporate sector? And, you know, that's still, that's still a challenge. Yes, there's women in the workforce uh, in the security corporate sector, but you find just like in the boardrooms, uh, you find less women uh, than you do men. And that is definitely something that I think is critical to a diverse team, not only you know, ethnical diversity, but but you also need that gender diversity as well. And women bring a, a very unique perspective uh, to problem sets and their perspectives are very critical in solving difficult, challenging solutions. So, yes, uh, as in my role as a board member for the CSO Center, 
as part of ASIS. We have partnered with the Women in Security, ASIS Women in Security, to help uh, understand what the challenges are. You know, for us, from my male perspective, I don't fully understand all the challenges. So my partnership stems around my desire to learn more about those challenges and from whatever position I'm in to help uh, positively impact that and to increase that diversity within not only the security industry, but the leadership of the industry in the security field. I think with all industries, as you mentioned there, it's impacted um, for the most part by the lack of equality between men and women. And I suppose it's a dual pronged approach to the lack of women in the boardroom, really. And you, on the one hand, you have women's reluctance to come forward and be leaders. Um, and on the other hand, there's the reluctance on the part of the entity, the business, the corporation in headhunting and offering opportunities to women and encouraging women to grasp those opportunities. And I suppose the gender pay gap is obviously in play as well. So it's vitally important because you mentioned there are women of a unique way. It's just a different way of looking at problems to men. And I think for, for both women and men, you know, it's, it's the ideal is to work alongside one another to get those different perspectives. We see it in politics all the time, you know. And I wonder, in 10 years time, do you feel that perhaps this traditionally male environment might be a little bit more welcoming and more open to many women working within the industry because they are long hours, potentially long periods away from home. It's not exactly a family friendly job, is it? And when childcare for the most part is still left to the mom of the household, there we encounter some problems. So it's a sort of a societal issue, really. There has to be effects in other industries in order for the women to be free to work if they need to or want to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think that the, those changes, those society norms are actually changing already, right? I've, I have friends, male friends, that they're stay-at-home dads, and the mother is out working. And so I think that standard is, has changed and will continue to change. Um, I mean, me personally, I would, yeah, I've had a blessed career, but I would welcome an opportunity to stay home and, and work. I say that almost tongue-in-cheek because that job's hard, and it's harder, much harder than what I'm doing. I come to work to take a break sometimes. And you work for free. (laughs) But, you know, I think that's changing, as you mentioned. It's slow, though. It's slow. It's discouraging sometimes. It is slow. And I think one thing that that struck me that I've learned in my discussions about this topic, when you look at a job posting and you have a male and a female equally qualified looking at that job posting, if that job posting has a requirement for that particular job and the female knows she does not make meet that requirement, what I've learned and have been told by other females, they won't put in for that job. Whereas the man looking at that, even though he knows he doesn't meet that requirement, he's still going to put in for that job. And maybe that requirement is not necessarily a requirement, but it's a desired you know, skill set. Fraser, can I ask you, what were some of the challenges in implementing a team for the Global Security Operations Center? I'm sure there were many. Yeah, absolutely. There were many. Um, I think, you know, obviously for any major corporation, especially in areas where there's multiple providers out there. And, you know, there was a there was a decision point. Do we create this in-house or do we seek an external vendor to help us run it? And we decided to go with an external vendor. 
because we didn't want to build that expertise in-house. And so now there's another challenge. Okay, what vendors do you look at? So we went through our whole process, right, our sourcing, global sourcing procurement process, and looked at multiple vendors. And ultimately, we decided to go with Special Projects and Services, SPS. And, you know, with any new effort, uh, it's just going to be like build, building a home, right? You're going you're gonna to go through it. You're going to build it. And you're going to have issues that arise during the a, during a construction phase. And at the end, when you have this beautiful new home, you're going to go through and you're still going to have a punch list of things that need to get fixed, right? So we're still working on that. But I got to tell you, SPS has been a great partner and have really made it easy because they really listened to us as their customer. What did we need? Yeah, they had a model. They had an idea about how to do their job. But I think what set them apart, at least for me during the whole process, was they listened to us on what we wanted as a customer and where we disagreed, where maybe because we're not the expert, we were wrong in what we thought we wanted. They were bold enough to stand up and say, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but did you ever think about this or consider this? Maybe you want to do it some a different way. And we would have that discussion. Now, at times we would say, yep, got it. Thank you. But no, we need it this way. And they would make it happen. So just the flexibility of them as a vendor in their expertise and their presence around the world. I am confident they, you know, they they support us on a daily basis, but when we have ad hoc emergency situations, I am comforted to know that I can pick up the phone call and they can fix it for us. They can cover it for us, whether they have it integral into their current or they need to go out and partner with somebody to make it happen. I am comforted to know that they have those resources available. Fraser, talking to you today has just been such an incredible journey from those early days in the mid-80s when you started work as a combat medic, you know, right up until today, where even now, as a dad, and I hope you don't mind me saying a grandfather as well, it's very clear that your job is as engaging, interesting and challenging now as it was over 30 years ago. What advice do you have for people who might like to break into the sector? Oh, wow. Uh, well, first, I want to say thank you, Laura, for giving me the opportunity to actually reflect on this career and for reminding me, yeah, my life right now is just as exciting and, and beneficial and rewarding as it was, you know, 30 years ago. So thank you for that. I guess the one piece of advice that, that I will have is just keep doing it. Find your passion. Find out, identify your life purpose. What is your life purpose? And if you do anything that's contrary to what that life purpose is, ask yourself why. And that will keep you on track of what your life purpose is. And life is short. Laugh. Have fun. I admit, and my family will tell you, I'm one of those people, sometimes I don't laugh enough and have fun enough. Uh, So that's important. I would caution and remind everybody to just have a good time. And as uh, one of my good friends always says, kindness counts, right? So be kind uh, because you never know. I am here today because of somebody else, not because of my skill sets, not because of who I am, but because of somebody else. So just be kind because you never know who's going to be out there to help you get to your next goal. Fraser, thank you so much. I have no doubt that you have helped many listeners today. 
with your wonderful insight and your kind words. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Laura, thank you for the opportunity. I greatly enjoyed it. And I just want to say a big thank you once again to Fraser Thompson for sharing his remarkable career journey with us today. Um, And I hope you'll agree that hearing him discuss the evolution of security, crisis management, and of course, the subtleties of leadership and honing those leadership skills has been incredibly enlightening. Before I leave you, just want to recognise Fraser's influential contributions, including his decorated service during critical moments, such as the events following September 11. And we do wish Fraser continued success in all of his future undertakings and want to say a big thank you to you, our audience, for tuning in. And we do hope that you'll join us again for more episodes of the Global Insights podcast, where we explore the insights of those shaping our future. So until the next time, stay informed and stay safe.